welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable on another terrible day for Europe. I'm Roz Taylor. Coming up in today's edition, what is Vladimir Putin really thinking? We talk to an expert in Russian politics who's tracked how he manipulates public opinion to get what he wants. Every day brings news of more sanctions and more companies leaving Russia. But what impact will they actually have? And how has President Zelensky managed to rally Ukrainians with just a few viral videos? We talk about his strategy and this new way of waging warfare. I'll also be talking to a university lecturer about why he was striking last week and what life is like for younger academics. All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, you can help us keep providing top quality podcasts six days a week by supporting us on Patreon. You can sign up for as little as £2 a month, even less than that daily coffee that's preventing you from purchasing a house. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Mieta Van Buller. Hello, Mieta. Hi, thanks for having me on. You support sanctions against Putin, but you've warned that they could cause ordinary Russians a huge amount of suffering and misery. Is there a risk we could try to punish Putin and end up punishing people who might like to get rid of him but can't? Yeah, look, this is really, really hard. um, And it's a very, very difficult balance to strike um, because on the one hand, absolutely sanctions are one of the biggest levers that I think Western countries have. The risk is that sanctions that essentially look to cripple the economy end up impoverishing the Russian people. Um, And actually, if you look at the history of economic sanctions, they often leave the population absolutely hammered, but without delivering regime change, Uh, not least because when you've got very brutal regimes, they don't really care. Um, that their people are being hammered. But more importantly, it's incredibly repressive regimes where it's very, very hard to rise up um, and turn the tide. So there has to be a balance. And for me, you know, the starting point must be you go after the money. Uh, You go after Putin, his extraordinary wealth, and you also go after the elite around him, um, who will have maximum influence. I think that's where you'll feel the pain. He will feel the pain most clearly and visibly. And you begin from there. But In all of this, I think we just have to be really clear about what we're trying to achieve. And I've heard some people say, essentially, cripple the economy, starve the people, they will rise up and they will overthrow him. And I think that's a really, really risky strategy, um, because the history of the last, you know, 40, 50 years is that that rarely happens. We'll be talking more about sanctions and whether Britain is doing enough and enough of the right kind of thing later in the podcast. This week, we have not one, but two guests. Tatton Spiller is founder of the Instagram news page, Simple Politics. Welcome to the bunker, Tatton. Well, thank you very much for having me along. Pleasure. You're on a mission to make politics more understandable. What prompted you to launch Simple Politics? Did you watch one too many PMQs? (laughs) And you can never watch too many PMQs. Um it was just it was just a case of uh, it not really existing. I was a teacher, and there was like an education bill going through Parliament that I didn't understand. It was change. It's the one that changed GCSE grades from letters to numbers. And even though it's a very simple thing, it just I didn't understand it. It doesn't take much. And um, I, I was googling it, and there was no one explaining what was going on. And I thought that's a bit odd. Then I had a total mental breakdown and couldn't work anymore, and set it up while I was not working 
it's been a good thing to come out of that bad period. And our other guest this week is Gulnaz Sharafut Dinova, a lecturer in Russian politics at King's College London's Russia Institute and author of The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity. Gulnaz, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. You were born in Tatarstan in Russia. Tell us a bit about that region. Yes, it's one of the northernmost Muslim regions, one of the 85 uh, federal subjects of the Russian Federation. Russia is incredibly diverse ethnically, culturally, linguistically, religiously. And so I was fortunate to be born in one of those uh, regions with very different Turkic population, Muslim religion. And um, I speak Tatar and um, I miss my motherland and the villages where my mother is um, buried now. What have the last couple of weeks been like for you? Well, personally, it's very devastating, of course. I'm a political scientist. I try to um, be analytical and make sense of what's happening. But frankly speaking, uh, very, very few people expected the extent of the devastation and the extent of the um, war that was coming uh, onto us. So for me personally, this is a devastation. For me, uh, as an analyst, I guess, you know, there is a lot of attention from the media. Um, but unfortunately, of course, the personnel takes over and um, I do care whether I will be able to go to Russia or not. And it looks like it might not be possible. Uh, it's a moral choice of taking a stance in this conflict and everyone has to take it. We cannot just shy away. Lots more from Gulnaz after the break. As we record this, President Zelensky is still alive, but the horrific rocket attacks on Ukrainian cities are continuing. Russia agreed to open up six humanitarian corridors for people to escape the fighting, but it turns out that four of them lead to either Russia or Belarus. And Ukrainians are understandably outraged that these escape routes would drive them straight to the country that's just invaded them. Meanwhile, the UK has let in 50 Ukrainian refugees, though the exact number is unclear, and it's not clear how many more we might admit or how we might do so. Russia's efforts to influence and manipulate the flow of information are well known by now, though very few people can know just how extensive they are. But in the last fortnight, Ukraine has fought back with powerful imagery and messaging, everything from Zelensky's videos to images of female MPs taking up Kalashnikovs. Tassin, Zelensky wasn't universally popular with Ukrainians until the Russian invasion. What is it about his bunker videos that you think cuts through and has been so successful? Well, he's he's uh, he's the most media trained president in history, right? I mean, he was a, he was an actor. He was he he he's he's come up through that 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 background, and he knows how to sell something. He's a showman to a certain extent. He literally played the president in a sitcom and he's now the president. He is playing that role incredibly well. Under the battle, he is he's creating a rallying cry around him. And he wasn't universally loved, but he did get 75% of the vote. This is a popular president. And he is managing to be... The, a big, tough, strong president at the same time as being approachable and um, show the, the compassion uh, needed. And he's, he, he's, he's got a good game. Obviously, he can't rally people in public at the moment. Russian special forces are reportedly trying to assassinate him. Can we compare what he's doing to other great communicators in war? I mean, Churchill on the radio in the Second World War springs to mind. 
he is bringing people together. And yes, in, in, in warfare, you think about Church, Churchill on the radio, but you also think about some of the American presidents uh, at, at times when, when they've been under fire. I mean, you know, the, um, the big speech from the, uh, from the aircraft carrier denouncing that war is over. That, war creates such emotion and such a focal point uh, that people become more presidential prime ministerial think about margaret thatcher on the in the tank um and even even to a certain extent boris johnson who uh, calls for him to to go have become much quieter now although labor repeated that they wanted them to go the other day war creates opportunities for leaders to be more leadery and that's that's always been the case I mean, no one remembers what King Henry V's policies were, apart from Agincourt. Gornas, you've studied the way that the Kremlin manipulates public opinion. What is Putin telling Russians about the war at the moment? Because he didn't exactly prepare them for this invasion. A lot of his soldiers apparently didn't even realise they were going to invade Ukraine. What line is the Kremlin taking about it? Although no one was really ready for the war itself, uh, we should, though, accept that the war was in the air for the past, well, eight years, since 2014 or so. Uh, this is the amount of time when the Russian propaganda, Russian state-controlled media, was working very hard and very deliberately building the image of the enemy in Russia. I, myself, personally, uh, speaking to people and, of course, following public opinion, have been noting how over the past years, we saw in public opinion, in personal accounts, people expressing fear of World War III. Even when I was interviewing uh, focus group interview groups of uh, Russians um, in two cities in Samara and Kazan in 2016, there were some individuals, uh, usually older folks, who live with the memory of um, Soviet so-called fight for peace. Uh, and also Soviet um, memory of World War II, uh, their first uh, reactions always to what they want uh, their country or the president to do was, you know, we just wish there is no war. And over the past, I would say, year or two, specifically the intensity of that propaganda and the intensity of posing the United States and specifically the Ukraine, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian nationalists, framed through fascist narrative, fascism uh, rhetoric, uh, presented as fascists. That was really, really intense. It never changed. It started around 2014, but it never changed. So the preparation for uh, this story that Russia, uh, that is led by, you know, this wonderful leader, Vladimir Putin, is um, standing up against its enemies, that narrative has been there uh, promoted intensely over the past at least eight years. So Putin has not portrayed this war as expanding Russia's empire, as expansionism in that way. He's very much portrayed Ukraine as a threat to Russia. 
Uh, he portrayed Ukrainian uh, government uh, since 2014 after the Yanukovych uh, running away in February 2014. Uh, every government, every president that came in after with Poroshenko first and now Zelensky, they were presented as fascist governments that are against Russian speakers and Russians who live in Ukraine and those Ukrainians who are pro-Russian or have geopolitically pro-Russian orientations, Russian, uh, they watch uh, Russian TV or uh, speak Russian or uh, do not want to uh, integrate into NATO. Uh, basically, uh, many uh, of those who lived in South and West. So, for example, Donbass and Lugansk regions were portrayed in uh, the Russian media as regions uh, where uh, bombings and shellings were killing uh, you know, those Russian speakers uh, with pro-Russian uh, identities. So for Putin, this is a responsibility to protect, just like annexation of Crimea occurred. This is exactly the same framing uh, for liberating Ukrainians from uh, fascist government, from militarism, from the Nazis. That is how it is presented to the Russian public, yes. You sense that Putin has tried to cultivate a bit of a personality cult but not succeeded perhaps as much as he wanted to. But that is very much the Western view. In Russia, is he viewed as a strong man, as someone to look up to? Crimean annexation in 2014 did wonders to bring the image of Putin up in the eyes of common Russian uh, citizens. It was such a perceived success that really added glory to his um, image and really equalized the image of Russian president to the image of the nation that was supposedly, presumably, standing up from its knees, standing up to the West, becoming stronger, becoming more successful, creating more hope for the Russian citizens. For a few years, at least until around 2017 and 18, this post-Crimea euphoria was very much in place in Russia, a number, you know, a big, big chunk of Russian uh, society did buy into this euphoria and into this sense of hope and pride that was associated with the decision making of Vladimir Putin. And one can definitely suggest that such a big success that was not originally expected from the Kremlin could have played into an overestimate of the potential in the war that they have undertaken now. But time evolves, people get older, their information sources uh, become narrower and narrower, and what he was able to pull through with Crimea is very clearly not happening now. Bieta, Russia has blocked access to Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, Western companies and governments are trying to cut off Russia's access to the internet and thereby information about the war. What are the risks in cutting off a population like this? Well, I think two things. I think um, the the companies that have uh, withdrawn or the big company that's withdrawn, which is a, U- a US company, basically takes away some of the infrastructure, the backbone infrastructure to allow the internet to work. So it won't completely remove the information, but it will slow down the internet and slow down access to information. I think for me, there is a big risk because, you know, in the end, the... Russian state machine has been highly effective at pushing out propaganda. A lot of people who aren't that savvy with technology will be consuming their information from state media outlets that are portraying one account of things. You know, there are 
countless examples of Ukrainians actually saying if Russians knew what would, was happening, if enough people knew, they would be absolutely horrified. But the information is not filtering through to them. So I think the ability to apply pressure on the Russian regime is conditional on people having a diversity of information that is hugely constrained. So you absolutely don't want to cut that any further. Um, and again, in all of this, there's a really difficult balancing act because I think it is completely legitimate for companies to say, we don't want association and we don't want to be supporting a regime. And this is an act of defiance. Uh, this is an act of solidarity with Ukraine. So I understand it, but there are unintended consequences. And one of that will be do not restrict information to those that can gain access to it and hopefully start spreading it because exposing the regime, exposing what it's doing and countering the dissemination and disinformation and propaganda will be as important in this war if you want to shift hearts and minds of the Russian people. Meanwhile, the number of sources that Westerners um... Europeans, Americans, other countries have for the about the war in Ukraine is almost limitless. There are thousands and thousands of Twitter accounts that claim to be on the ground. There is the usual broadcast media. Tatton, what information sources are you finding most useful? Are you sticking with old media or are you following some of the newer organisations as well? I'm afraid I stick very much with with, with, with old media because um, I don't really have the infrastructure to weed out what's more genuine and what's less genuine. I think it's very difficult. Like even I, I use all all of the websites you can imagine from from the BBC to Sky to the Guardian to the Telegraph to the Times. You know, just trying to cross reference as much as I can what's going on, and even those sources who have a lot of resources are reporting things as Ukrainian authorities say. It's really hard to verify all the things that came through. Just just before this podcast started, a news report came through about um, a bakery having been uh, hit by Russia and as you know, like 11 people died. This this hor- horrible thing. It's all, this is claimed by the authorities. It's so hard to tell. Um, and I think that, as I do with UK stories or any anything, cross-referencing different, I suppose, mainstream media, it's not a term I like, but mainstream media places as well as voices on Twitter and that kind of thing. It's that cross-referencing that always really helps. Yeah, I found myself thinking about that whole cliche about truth being a casualty of war when I started following Ukraine Stratcom. And I was really wanted to to believe that U- Ukraine's strategic communications were absolutely correct. But, you know, I can't be absolutely sure of that. How would I know they have an interest in presenting things in a certain way? It's very it's very difficult, isn't it, to to even when when a, a source might have ulterior motives for saying what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The um, the first uh, ceasefire for um, uh, for people to get out, I think it was Maripol. It was then authorities are saying that they're being blocked, and the Russians were saying no, the Ukrainian people aren't letting people leave, so they can say they're being blocked. For a little bit, it wasn't quite clear. I mean, I think I think now we we know pretty much for sure they could did continue shelling, and the roads were mined. So they couldn't get out. But when you've got two voices who are both trying to show the world their own version of the story, it can be tricky to work out what's going on. Gulnaz, what social media sources are you using to follow the war? If you are, perhaps you're just using traditional media. 
No, no, I am a lot on social media and also on various Telegram accounts. So I really uh, try to tune into a very diverse uh, range uh, with the traditional BBC and The Guardian and I don't know, New York Times, and but also individuals who I follow. You know, there are great analysis by uh, Laurie Friedman, for example, an analyst on war. And there are also those on Facebook who follow the military events um, more closely, which then I follow with them. And then there are Telegram accounts that are both news-based, but also which collect information from on the ground, from Lviv, from Kiev, from Kharkiv, where people use these technologies to connect with others, to seek help. And you have sort of mostly on the ground information from uh, from those sources. So I sort of try to go both uh, into depth and into individual accounts, but also uh, more analytical sources. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a prime minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. sanctions that the EU, US and UK have deployed against Putin and the oligarchs have been much wider than most people predicted, with Russian banks having their assets frozen, companies in the state stopped from raising funds in foreign markets. Many big companies have stopped their operations in Russia. But Britain has been criticised for not acting so quickly against the oligarchs as the EU, US and EU. The government says our laws make it harder to impose sanctions on individuals, and it blames a lawyer and crossbencher, Lord Panic, for adding amendments to a bill in 2018 that may make it more difficult to do that. Miata, the economic crime bill is being rushed through Parliament as we record, and it's meant to tackle money laundering in the UK. But has it come too late? No, in so far as that if, if the government does rush it through and the legislation um, you know, goes through Parliament within a month, which is what they're talking about, then it will help. I think the challenge is uh, twofold. The things that are being suggested and provided for in the bill, one of the big interventions is requiring essentially a register of properties so that uh, we can get away from the fact that people can essentially hold properties without it being clear who's holding it so it's much easier to money launder or you can use shell companies. That is all well and good and that transparency can help you target individuals. I think one of the issues is that, you know, the, the, what the government was originally proposing was that you would essentially have 18 months to register. Uh, now, that's likely to be cut due to an amendment down to six months, but that's still quite a long time to allow people to essentially 
essentially just opt to move their money out of the country in order to bypass this and in order to mitigate the potential um, punitive impacts on them. So there is a question about whether it has teeth itself. But I think the big issue for me is that when you think about you know, the U- the UK is doing a lot. You know, it has put forward quite a lot of sanctions. I think where it's falling short is sanctions that speak to individuals um, and sanctions that are looking to target oligarchs and looking to ta- uh, target the elite. And it's just the sheer volume. Uh, so, you know, you look at what the EU is doing, about 680 individuals as compared to, I think, are about 195 might have increased a little bit. Um, and by the way, of that number, only uh, about nine um, have actually been sanctioned since the invasion. So even with the powers that we have now, our government could be doing more and they're not. And for me, this bill will help in the margins and the government would argue that actually it will strengthen their hands to some extent um, in order to go further. But even with the powers that they do have at the moment, they could do more And there is a question about why are they moving so slowly when the EU and the US are moving much further. Tassin, it's emerged that the owner of the Evening Standard, Evgeny Lebedev, got a peerage in 2020, despite the fact that officials warned that his father was in the KGB. And in fact, he spent the money that he inherited from his father on buying the Evening Standard. He's only spoken in the Lords once. He's never voted there. He was even allowed, and this really blew me away, to call himself Lord Lebedev of Hampton and Siberia, which always feels (laughs) comical, doesn't it? We seem to have been comfortable with letting oligarchs launder their money in the UK. But is a seat in the Lords proving a step too far for people? Well, I mean, we have we've, we have been very comfortable with very rich Russians. I mean, you know, Roman Abramovich is a very he's he's a big public figure. We've spoken a lot about him recently, and we've you know these these guys that this money they've got seems to had <laughs> to put it diplomatically. It seems to have somehow come out of um, the pockets of the regular people in Russia. Uh, the collapse of the USSR. That's why that's why we've got these oligarchs, right? And so there's something slightly distasteful about it already. In fact, Miata just said something really interesting because she was talking about how lots of these individuals have been sanctioned before. So after uh, the Salisbury poisonings, Theresa May talked about uh, sanctioning very hard on Russia and Russian individuals to really fight back. And it, and it seems to me that the, the, the kind of the envelope has been pushed further and further and further. And so now we look back at where we were and yeah, <laughs> we gave him a seat in the House of Lords. Like right at the heart, you turn up in the UK with enough cash, you can get right to the very heart of the establishment. Well, the weird thing about this is that James Cleverly, a minister, was defending this today. And he said that actually it was an argument against the fact, the idea that Russia was influencing uh, British politics because Lebedev has has never voted there and rarely spoken. And so it it was extraordinary to me that we can have a second chamber, that it is apparently okay to stuff with people who are not expected to play any part in it. Have you, on on simple politics, you know, have you grappled with the House of Lords much and tried to explain its bizarre workings to people? Well, I used to work at uh, Parliament's Education Service. Um, And so I I worked directly for the House of Lords. And uh, when I went into the the Education Service there, I was very, I thought the whole thing was ridiculous. 
ridiculous. And um, while I was there, I completely fell in love with it. I think it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful place. I love the idea that you don't turn up unless you're useful and you don't speak or vote unless you're like your expertise fits with that debate. I think that's a great system. You have a massive subs bench and you pull on the people who, who are needed for that debate. The James Cleverly thing um, is brilliant because one of my favorite things about politics is watching people go out to bat for something that's ridiculous. Right. And, and you see it from, from politicians of all sides. They've got to go and say, they don't agree with it. They've just got to find a way to say it. And, um, like my, my children are all very good at saying, thank you very much for that question. It's a really important question you just asked me. Thank you. Yes, I think Russia is a country and I hope that answers your question. And they can, they, they, and, you know, if I ask them if they've eaten their vegetables, they'll deflect and uh, talk about something else. And um, it's, you know, that's what passes for fun in the Spiller household, uh, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> It's interesting because I hear a lot of people attacking the fact there are about 800 peers, but you've just given a fairly good reason for why it's actually a good thing that there are hundreds more peers than can actually fit in the chamber. Gulnaz, what impact do the sanctions seem to be having in Russia from what you can tell so far? Yes, um, the impact was felt uh, early on from day one pretty much. Uh, We saw the Russian currency ruble plummeting uh, by uh, double, like twice uh, in terms of exchange rates. We saw people um, queuing uh, on the, during, uh, by the banks trying to exchange their rubles, save, you know, basically save their savings. We saw prices on electronics rising by around 30% or so. And these are just very, very early economic uh, effects uh, uh, now, the other part of it is that we see tens of thousands of people uh, fleeing Russia. Uh, I think the borders are increasingly will be held tighter and tighter. People going through Helsinki, uh, the upper middle class leaving through Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, and into the European side as well. So we see a big um, jump in brain drain. Um, we see scholars, writers, musicians leaving Russia. So, uh, and we see economic impact. And I think what I'm hearing from people who live in Moscow and in other cities, you know, there is just this sober, grim outlook that society has gone into anywhere between a sense of denial, uh, into a sort of this defensive consolidation, trying to make sense of what's happening and not to become those who uh, would go against the Russian army because it's their children, it's their sons who are in the Russian army. And then those who are politically engaged, who go on the streets and who, you know, who go, who go uh, mobilize against the war and uh, are detained. Thousands and thousands are detained. So I know I've gone beyond the economic sanctions, but I'm trying to talk about all the uh, impact, societal impact that we see from economy to social and to politics. So the better off are essentially people who might be able to perhaps influence Putin are essentially leaving Russia, leaving behind the people who are going to be very, very badly hurt by sanctions, by the effects of sanctions. Those who have the means to leave definitely are confronted with this decision. Not, I cannot say that all of them are leaving. Some decide to stay despite all the 
things that are going on because of personal political commitment, because of family obligations, um, because of sometimes jobs that they don't want to lose, because of age and their desire to stay in, in the country. But everyone who has the means and opportunities to live because they have good professions or uh, they have some savings, they do confront and they have to decide if they want to stay or they want to leave Russia today. Do you think Putin will be able to rally Russians by portraying this as a Western war on them? Because he's described sanctions as an act of war. You know, the the issue of rallying, right, um, it depends on how we understand rallying. So if we understand it as an active uh, sort of sense of euphoria and support, then we don't see that. Putin is not able to do that. This is not Crimea. If you think about rallying as um, this grim and sober consolidation behind your government and behind your army, you have a big group in the population who is exactly doing that. Despite the fact that everyone was against the war, no one would have voted. And when I say no one, I mean... uh, I probably would, would can vouch for 95% of the population in Russia would not have supported that tomorrow is starting the war and you have to vote and they will not have supported. But once the war has started and they were not given a choice, people do consolidate behind the leadership because they do not see another opportunity for themselves. Uh, they do not see the possibility to criticize the regime, tell to themselves We can criticize after we win. Right now, we need to consolidate and stand behind our leadership. Unfortunately, there is at least, I would say, 40 to 50 percent of the population that thinks along those ways. So if you call that rally, uh, then then it is a rally. Uh, Yeah, if you if you but it's sort of it has this very defensive consolidatory nature. And some people are just simply in denial of what's happening and they buy into the propaganda and into the informational strategies used by the Kremlin and suggesting that nothing bad is really happening. Putin is restoring order, protecting uh, Russian speakers in Ukraine. And as soon as, uh, you know, uh, Russian army is able to demilitarize Ukraine to ensure its neutrality and to protect Russian speakers, the so-called military operation will stop and everything will be in order. They just do not want to confront the reality of destruction, the reality of devastation and the reality of war. There are also those who are in denial. And as I mentioned, there is also a group who realizes very well what's happening. So there is a huge polarization in Russia today. And um, as several of my colleagues suggested, including uh, Dr. Sam Green and Kirill Rogov in Russia. Putin is doing is at two wars. One war is in Ukraine and one war that is going on within Russia as well because of the extreme polarization within the society and extremely divided opposite views on what's happening. People really live in a different world. And sometimes these are the worlds of mothers, fathers, children, sisters, Within families, we see this incredible polarisation. Bieta, Alan Duncan, who's a former minister with a lot of links to the energy industry, warned today that there's a risk we could sanction ourselves if we, as he put it, go too far with sanctions. What would going too far be? That's that's a very good question. Um, And I'm not sure he knows himself. Um, (laughs) So... uh, uh, 
In the end, we are uh, a globalized world um, and our economies are hugely interconnected. Um, so if you hit one economy, there will be a rebound. And I think the two ways um, that we'll feel it in particular is oil and gas. Uh, now, if you look at Europe, for example, 35% of Europe's uh, gas comes from Russia. And at a point where the price of gas is already extraordinarily high and people are really, really struggling from gas prices and um, oil prices, the worry is that if there is a hit on Russian oil and gas, it basically hugely exacerbates that. The UK is slightly more insulated and so far as only 3%, I think, of our gas comes from Russia. But in the end, if, for example, you take something like the German market and they have to turn to other providers that aren't Russia, then that's just going to increase the price. So there'll be a knock-on effect that, on that. There'll be a knock-on effect on wheat and grain. So we know that between Russia and Ukraine, they provide about 30% um, of the world's uh, wheat. And so any disruption to that will have an impact back on us. And I think in particular for the UK, and I suspect this is what he was moving towards or uh, alluding to, our economy is hugely financialized. Uh, money sloshing around London and the city of London has been one of the huge drivers um, of our economic performance. And increasingly, we are seeing how wrapped that up, how wrapped up that is uh, with very wealthy oligarchs um, in Russia. And inevitably, if you sanction them um, and they either choose to move their money out or indeed you freeze those assets or I'll confiscate those assets, that will have an impact um, on the sort of financial sector that will have an impact on the property sector uh, within London. So there are and there will be ramifications. But in the end, I think the judgment is you're talking about the lives of people in Ukraine uh, versus potentially a hit to the financial sector in this country. And you've got to get that balance right. And I know what side I'd fall on. Um, but in, in all of this, none of it is easy. Uh, it is very difficult, complex issues that require fine balances and good judgment. And you can only hope that a prime minister who has not shown much judgment can navigate through all of that. I mean, as you say, we've already seen stratospheric energy bills in the UK, and now they're predicted to rise again. I mean, how much more pain do you think people can, can take? Because, you know, we're talking about bills of £3,500 a year for the average household. It's making 1970s energy crisis look, you know, trivial. I mean, it, it, it's pretty shocking. You look at the numbers um, and they are just, you know, I'm an economist. I deal with numbers all the time. But, I mean, it takes my breath away. Uh, we are talking about a real squeeze. I think the thing that makes it so difficult is that, it comes off the back of 10 years in which living standards haven't really budged, where wages have been stagnant, where we've just come out of a pandemic. So people were already feeling the pinch. And then you're talking about pretty shocking numbers. And then it's not just energy. There's a huge amount of focus on energy. But, you know, I've talked about, you know, wheat, for example, but we know the cost of food, for example, is going to hugely increase. And the key thing is that energy affects everything. So every single goods that are produced, every single service will have a knock-on effect uh, because of increasing energy prices and they'll pass that on to consumers. So people are going to be hit from every angle. And this is why I come back to, you know, in the end, what can you do about it? I don't see any other world but the government intervening in quite a massive way. And I don't say that just because I like government intervention, but it is pretty extraordinary times. It's a sort of, you know, huge shock, a bit like a pandemic that you just can't explain away. 
Um, it will have such a profound impact on people that don't have that much resilience to weather it that I don't see any other way than the government stepping in in order to just try to take the the, the pain out a little bit uh, and allow people to kind of manage and navigate through this for, you know, what looks like it could be, you know, not just a couple of months, but potentially a year, 18 months, two years. I just don't think households that have been hammered for quite a long time, I don't think they can withstand this without some sort of support and intervention. Inevitably, perhaps over the weekend, Nigel Farage stepped in and he demanded a referendum on net zero and said he wanted to end our dependence on overseas oil and gas. Tassin, Farage obviously thinks he's spotted an opportunity, has he? He he is. I mean, he is relentless. I first came across Farage properly um, when I was uh, organising a school assembly um, and uh, kind of emailed anyone I could think of who had anything to do with Kent. And, um, and he personally replied and said, yeah, I'll come. And um, and then he pitched up, and uh, I, I happened to, to find um, someone uh, a very a very glamorous lady of the Green Party uh, who 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 wowed the audience a bit more than Farage did. Um, in fact, Farage was a bit Farage had been hit over the head by a placard at a demonstration. I wrote about him uh, in my book about change makers because he is an amazing change maker he really did bring about brexit like he had a massive part in us voting to leave now i know this podcast and other sister podcasts of this one aren't too keen on brexit um but you could he, say that you could I, 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 I get that impression <laughs> he campaigned relentlessly tirelessly for that and it's something he believed in clearly and he made it happen and there's not Many people who have that big an impact in a country, not many people outside government who have that big an impact on a country. And um, yes, I think that maybe this campaign for referendum might be trying to, I don't know what he does now. I think that maybe he needs something to fill his time. He's gone, we'll, we'll push for this referendum. I mean, that's not going to happen, is it? I hope not. Like, I mean, well, you're not fans of referendums. Um, like, of course, it's not going to happen. I, why? I don't. I don't. Maybe you've come to me to tell you why, but I don't. I can't. I don't know why. Tube drivers weren't the only ones striking last week. Members of the University College Union were also out and didn't teach students for several days. I talked to Dr Robbie Watt, a lecturer in politics at Manchester University, who was on strike over the past couple of weeks. Tell us why academics are striking. There's a number of different issues at stake, aren't there? Yes, we're striking over... A lot of different issues because we're facing a lot of struggles within higher education at the moment. Many institutions are on strike because of very significant cuts to pensions. A lot of staff are in the USS, which is the university's superannuation scheme. The valuation that was conducted in 2020, which was a problematic valuation of the scheme during the height of the coronavirus pandemic, has led to a situation where employers have pushed through changes to the scheme, which will lead towards significant cuts to the benefits that staff members can expect upon their retirement. Personally, in my case, that looks like something in the region of 35% cuts to the defined benefit pension that I could expect. 
in old age. So that's you know more than a third of what I can hope to retire on. There are some potential limitations to that benefit, but it's still probably going to look at like about 20% or more. And that's just one of the issues. We're also on strike in many places because of cuts to pay in real terms, which have been occurring for the last 10 years or more that pay rises are below inflation so that this is a continual erosion of workers pay also the increasing use of casual contracts in the sector is something that we're contesting the casualization the turn towards something like a gig economy in higher education the huge amount of overwork that many colleagues are struggling with that although our working week is notionally something like 35 or 37 hours So many colleagues are having to work in evenings and weekends just to keep up with the pressure and the demands. Meanwhile, we're also looking at pay gaps for women and for non-white staff. So there's a race, ethnicity pay gap, as well as a disability pay gap. One of the things that people often don't get about academia is that you have to work very, very, very hard, especially in the first years after your PhD, because you have to start publishing a lot and establish a reputation. And you're also often starting teaching. And when you start teaching, it's much more, it's much harder work than towards the end of your career often. And it's especially a problem for women, isn't it? Because just when you would normally be thinking about starting a family, then that is when you need to be running as fast as you can. And sometimes as well, traveling internationally in order to get the jobs in your field, which are very limited. That's absolutely right, Ros. The workloads are very heavy. Lots of colleagues are struggling to manage their workloads. And when you factor in the types of expectation that are put especially on younger members of staff who are looking to get a secure form of employment, then they are sometimes having to work even if they're not being paid, in order to make themselves a little bit more likely to get a secure position where they don't have to move around the country or even internationally. At the same time, they're thinking, well, what if I might want to stay in in a certain place because I want to start a family or I want to put down roots and maintain friendship circles? And this is the worry that academia is becoming increasingly incompatible with family life, with maintaining friendships. And this is something which is gendered and it's more broadly forcing people to sacrifice a rounded human experience of life. If people need to struggle incredibly hard to try and make it through the casualization, which is increasingly endemic in higher education, to get a more secure form of employment, they'll have to work and work and work. And, and the employers are banking on the willingness of people in in HE, higher education, to make those sacrifices. And we think that the model fundamentally is broken and it has to be changed through collective action. And that's where the union steps in. And that's where we're trying to say to employers, look, we need to really rethink the way that you are running higher education for the sake of students, for the sake of research and for the sake of the health of the people who are working in these institutions. Let's turn it around just a little bit, because for students, this has also been a very hard couple of years. People who are graduating in 2022 
have often lost half of their face-to-face teaching time. And some of them, particularly given that they're paying such high fees, are very fed up about that. They are also, some of them, fed up about the fact that there are strikes and they're losing even more of it. What would you say to these students who are, you know, have very little time left, frankly, with you if they're in the third year of their undergraduate degree and are losing even more of it? It may be that there are such students. I personally haven't met many such students. I've had lots of messages of support and I've met many students from class on the picket lines around the university on days when we've been on strike. And I've seen lots of solidarity between students and staff and also lots of support from the National Union of Students. But of course, you're right, some students will be frustrated. And the first thing I'd say is that, of course, we don't like having to go on strike. We don't want to disrupt students learning if we can avoid it and we're really sorry that it has come to this. I think that those students who are in this position will recognise how committed their lecturers and other members of staff are to education and also recognising that those teachers and other staff will see the trends in higher education which are running those staff into the ground and which are already diminishing the possibility of excellent educational experiences for students. And basically, if things keep going in this direction, then students in years to come are going to face even worse conditions. And this is basically a historic moment in higher education, where its future is genuinely at stake. And if those students care a lot about missing their class, then they also care about education. So I would say to students who are feeling that way, please recognise that your learning conditions are very intimately connected to the working conditions of staff and recognise that the education of future generations of students hangs in the balance here. So I would recommend to all students, however they feel, that they should write to their vice-chancellors at their institutions and ask why they're not paying staff fairly, why they're not facilitating reasonable workloads so that their teachers are not turning up to class feeling drained and sick, You know why the odds are stacked against staff who are from working class backgrounds, who are women, who are non-white, and why the pensions have been cut. So I would encourage students to ask vice-chancellors those questions and ask them to think again about their dismissal of staff concerns. Robbie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Some say Putin is ill or on drugs that are affecting his state of mind. Others say that like many autocrats, he's just come to believe his own propaganda. But as so often in history, thousands of lives and the fate of a whole nation now depends on what Vladimir Putin decides to do next. Gulnaz, how will Putin be feeling about how the invasion is playing out? Some estimates put the number of Russian soldiers killed at 10,000, which is very high. Yes, uh, we do see a very interesting question and a sense of his leadership that might be at the moment defined more as a small sect. Uh, where a few people have access to his body, to his mind, and inform him frequently of what he might want to hear. So at this point, it's an open question whether he is given an actual information or it is more of an unrealistic information. It's pretty clear by uh, all serious observers that Russia has underestimated the resistance in Ukraine, and Russia has overestimated its own military and its own capacity for quick victory 
in this war that they have started. Why do these overestimates and underestimates occur? And I cannot think of anything else but the structure of leadership that has evolved with years of selection of individuals who have access to Putin and who might be giving him information that he wants to hear and protecting him from the reality. So how grounded that uh, that uh, rationality and that decision-making is is questionable. And yes, there is political science literature into this evolution of dictators and dictatorial decision-making and groupthink that occurs when decision-making occurs without input from outside sources and it inevitably fails. The West obviously hopes that someone, somehow, will get rid of Putin. Do you think that is a reasonable possibility? Is there anyone in his inner circle or close to him who might be able to remove him? These conversations and such thinking is extremely natural and it sort of aligns really well with widespread popular desires these days of all the people who understand the extent of the massacre and catastrophe that is ongoing. Now, Knowing about Putin's uh, background in security services, uh, I'm pretty confident uh, the various potentialities of poisoning, overthrow, are somehow um, thought about and protective mechanisms are taken into, um, you know, realized. Uh, However, uh, one cannot deny the increasing grievances Uh, of both elites and uh, potentially uh, as sanctions hit more and more and as more of the society realizes the depth of the stagnation or collapse and poverty that country is going into and especially the more the reality of Russian army not winning but facing failure, the more that reality becomes closer to both elites and the public his position, uh, the position of Putin, is becoming weaker and weaker. Now, I will not, I don't have a crystal ball, and I would say, you know, it might happen, it might not happen. I don't think anyone can say, but there are grounds for such thinking, but there are also grounds for thinking that uh, he is well protected and uh, there are various means of protection of something like that happening. Are there any grounds for thinking that he might be able to row back at this point? an off-ramp, as diplomats tend to put it, that would enable him to withdraw from Ukraine? We see maybe some extremely small, fine signs of potential change in the Russian negotiating position. With every day, the Russian position grows weaker. With every day of war and Ukrainian resistance, we see that Russia is not achieving its aims. And, uh, for example, today I didn't find the source, but, um, again, through social media, I saw one analyst I respect, Dimitar Bichev. He said, he said that the Russians negotiating stance removed the denazification, which was an early indicator of the uncompromising position of the Russian side in negotiations with Ukrainians. So removal of denazification as their ultimate goal, while keeping Crimean status, while keeping the status of DNR and LNR, suggests that 
we might see a bit of light, we might see some change in the Russian position, which is an obvious reaction and a plausible reaction to the sense of failure that might be going on within the Russian military camp. What do you think his end goal is? You've watched him for a long time. We know he would like to have occupied Ukraine. Perhaps he he may well still do so. Does he really want to eventually provoke a full-on war with NATO by, say, attacking Poland or the Baltics? Is that part of his mindset, do you think? Yes, my own sense is that uh, Russia is um, focusing on Ukraine, on punishing Ukraine, on taking revenge on Ukraine, and on an attempt to control Ukraine, and thus drawing a line vis-à-vis the West. And this um, uh, last night's thought of mine about the non-occurrence of uh, cyber attack on the Western countries, taken along with uh, the responsible leadership uh, of the Western countries with regards to the no-fly zone, although it is criticized, suggests that Russian government might be signaling and getting signals from the West that this is a Ukraine-focused uh, affair. But it also is clear that in these types of, if we believe in the ungrounded and unhinged nature of leadership, that appetite grows while you eat, there are therefore perceived threats for the Baltic states, for Kazakhstan as well. But uh I would like to think that um, we do see some signs, at least so far, that uh, the Russian government is attempting to make a statement with regards to controlling Ukraine. Some people have suggested he could use a nuclear weapon. Do you worry about that too? A lot, absolutely. And my worry is based on the fact that the decision to start an all-out war was not expected and seems irrational from outside. And From my own perspective, which is, of course, emotional, but I just do not see how Russia could win this war, given the degree of resistance in Ukraine, given the consolidation of the opinion and the unification and consolidation of support for Ukraine around the world, globally, it's just impossible to imagine that Russia could win. And uh, therefore, such irrationality in the decision-making, such an unanticipated nature of this decision suggests that anything could happen and the nuclear attack or use of nuclear weapons is among those you know, uh, potentialities uh, of unanticipated, unthinkable that has happened once and therefore no one can say that we do have, we're dealing with a very rational leadership that will not allow that to happen. Furthermore, in the earlier, uh, uh, about a year ago, or maybe even more, but Putin allowed himself uh, a narrative of suggesting when there was a question about what happened if there's nuclear war and what happened if there's no Russia, he answered, well, why there should be a world if there is no Russia in it? So such talk which was in terms of words, right, we heard uh, many months ago. But now with the real war ongoing and with the actions that we see happening, of course, increases um, the uncertainty and the perception of threats, including with regards to nuclear attack. Yes. I'm Rob Hutton, and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it. So I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon. And I do get it. 
so I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis, and Satin Sangara as we rewatch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. We normally just ask people what they've watched or read, but this week I wanted to get an idea of how you try to wind down when the news is overwhelming, as it often has been this week. Mia, so what do you try to do to relax? Do you know what, which is not the answer you want, but I'm finding it really hard um, to to sort of to, to switch off uh, from the sense of just injustice, moral outrage, um, and just huge sympathy and empathy. Um, It seems to be with me all the time, which I know is not the answer that you wanted. I did, however, this weekend uh, go to Paris uh, with a group of girls without my children, um, which was amazing, uh, just to try and kind of get away, to sort of de-stress, to get some sleep, uh, which all happened and was amazing. But it it was, I think, instructive and indicative of the times that you know, Ukraine uh, and Russia and the war came up quite a few times. Uh, and, you know, amongst friends that aren't in the kind of political sphere, uh, aren't necessarily that politically active, but it feels like it is just everywhere. And I think it's that sense of outrage and helplessness at the same time, um, which I know is not your, the answer you wanted, but it's the answer I'm giving to you. I also went to Paris the weekend before last, and it was, it was I, I must admit, it was lovely to be able to travel freely again without so much bureaucracy and and so on. But as you say, Ukraine did hang over the entire experience. We did spend quite a lot of time talking about it. Cool, Nurse, it must have been particularly overwhelming for you. Have you been able to disengage at all? Yes, I'll share with you one um, breath of fresh air that I've experienced over the past few days. And that was my husband's uh, genius suggestion to rewatch a wonderful three-hour film Uh, by Philip Kaufman, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. This is based on Milan Kundera's famous, wonderful book, novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Why it fits the moment. It's actually almost an erotic, beautiful movie, really nicely shot. But it takes place, the story of this um, physician who loves women, takes place in the context of Prague in 1968, under Soviet invasion and under Soviet tanks. And the evolution of relationships, the position taken by individuals in various organizations, the portrayal of occupants and the portrayal of resistance and what's happening on the streets, it just brings it home uh, and resonates so much today. And it's a piece of art, that film, so I would definitely... Um, suggest that um, that's a wonderful opportunity to watch right now and to connect historical events of 1968 to events that are happening now. It's a great book. I would certainly like to watch that. Tassan, how have you been trying to wind down? Well, I, uh, I have a diagnosis of bipolar and all of this has kicked off something of a kind of sub-manic episode. I'm not fully manic, but uh, I'm pretty much all over the place. And so winding down is kind of out of the question. I've been 
<laughs> my partner came home to me uh, with live rolling news on the television, loud punk music playing, and I was scrubbing the kitchen floor all at the same time. And that's kind of how I'm dealing with things. There's just so much, there's so much news all the time to keep scrolling, to keep reading, to keep, keep going. And it's so miserable and it's so constant and there just trying to find, do you know what? I did an education session today, um, just on, just online. And I spoke to 30, 30 year tens from Skelmersdale and it was the best thing I've done in weeks. It was just really lovely just to talk about, about politics and, uh, have fun with them. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Mieta Fanbula. Thanks for having me on. To Gulnaz Sharafut Dinova. Yes, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> and to our special guest, Tatten Spiller. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, you can help us keep doing it by supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout out at the end of the podcast, and here are some now. So it's thanks from me to Andy Reagan, David Manley, and Robin Gutch. And it's best wishes from me to Luke Bishop, Debbie Honor, and Harry Uleto. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Miata Farnbella. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>